This is a Federal News Network podcast. Holly Ridings, the first female chief of NASA's flight directors, will now lead the agency's Gateway Program, an international partnership to establish humanity's first space station around the moon. In this new role, Ridings will serve as deputy program manager. She'll lead teams to build and launch NASA's foundational infrastructure in deep space. Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Ridings about what that all entails. Gateway program, right? Part of the overall Artemis Enterprise. Uh, Super exciting, small, human-tended space station around the moon. And that's just fun to say, right? We're building a space station around the moon. And uh, it's going to be a platform for, you know, the crew members, uh, for uh, sustaining uh, time on orbit so that when uh, the Orion vehicle or potentially other vehicles come to Gateway, uh, the crew members can stay on board, participate in science. And from that platform, uh, other crew members can head down to the surface of the moon. And so uh, it's a science platform. It's a you know crew capability and it'll give us an opportunity to figure out how to live and work in you know deeper space, right? So cislunar space around the moon so that we can then head on to Mars, it, you know, kind of our, our toehold or our beachhead, you know, whichever word you want to want to use. And so Gateway is a pretty exciting uh, piece of the Artemis Enterprise. You know, one other thing that's really, really important is it's an international space station. So a lot of international collaboration uh, going into and ownership going into the different elements that make up the Gateway itself, right? It's got different pieces that come together uh, to make the space station in its entirety. And so for our international partners, commercial providers, you know, there's a lot of, you know, sort of skin in the game, you know, from the entire world. Other than the obvious one, which is that it's farther away, uh, what are some of the different challenges of stationing humans in cislunar space as compared to the current ISS, which is, you know, just right outside the earth, right next door? (laughs) I don't know. You started with other than the obvious one that is farther away, but that, I mean, that is one of the most challenging (laughs) pieces, right? Uh, You know, so basics, like the environment is different, right? And so, you know, when you consider radiation, when you consider, you know, the orbit itself and how you are um, positioned with respect to the sun and therefore the power you can generate, right? Uh, there's a lot of challenges from an emergency standpoint, right? You know, back to you are farther away because right now from the International Space Station, you can actually get home pretty quickly, right? But from Gateway, you know, it takes a long time and especially, you know, much longer. And especially if, you know, you're a crew member down on the surface, you know, you, you've got you've to head all the way home. And so, you know, we do spend a lot of time considering those scenarios and, and those differences. You know, te- technically, we have not uh, flown a space station in this orbit that is uh, around the moon. If you look at it, you know, it kind of comes close to the surface of the moon and then it goes around. Um, it gets farther away from the moon. And so just even the time it takes to make it orbit, the distance from the surface at different points in the orbit is very different from the way the International Space Station flies today. So all of those pieces, you know, kind of change the way you make you make decisions and the way you design systems and the way you have the crew members interact with those systems as part of the mission. Yeah, focusing on the lunar aspect of things, you know, it's been a while since we've been to the moon. What are you personally and what is NASA most, I guess, you know, excited about getting back to the moon? I mean, having I, I can only think of how amazing it would be to have high definition on the moon. Uh, but that's just me. Um, I'm, I'm curious and uh, of what you think. Yeah. So, you know, let's think about it for a minute from the from the human 
you know, as in, as in the humans on earth aspect. Right. So, you know, when, when I was coming up, Challenger happened. And so I was a student when Challenger happened. And so that was kind of my inspiration for getting into human spaceflight. That there's a problem. Let's go fix that. I don't want that to happen again. But if you consider, you know, this generation, whether that's us or, you know, people younger, you know, my son is 10, to have, you know, again, a space station around the moon and to get down to the surface of the moon and, you know, to talk about going to Mars, you know, giving, you know, every human on the earth that event as inspiration for science, for technology, for communication. I mean, you mentioned video. Think about how it's going to change the way we perceive, you know, ourselves and what we're capable of doing to go outside and and just to look up at the moon and know there's a small space station and sometimes people down on the surface. And so, you know, certainly I could tell you lots of technical things that I'm really excited about. You know, we're, we're getting, you know, new thrusters on the propulsion power and propulsion element of gateway, you know, we're collaborating with our international partners. We're, you know, figuring out how to, you know, spiral the first elements of a gateway out to its position around the moon. I mean, all those are amazing technical things I'm excited about, but what I'm most excited about is being responsible for putting something in orbit around, around the moon that every human in, on earth can go outside and look up and know it's there. You talked a little bit about uh, how you got started. Uh, you've been doing this a while now. Uh, what made you want to take this next leap into, you know, obviously in, working in NASA, you're always looking for something new, I guess. But what part of this project really uh, stuck out to you and made you want to uh, kind of, you know, jump ship, so to speak? Yeah. So, you know, I don't think about it as jumping ship. And it's interesting you say that, right? So I, I've been doing human spaceflight operations, uh, you know, in the, the flying spaceship side, you know, the mission control for the last 20 years. And it is amazing. I absolutely loved everything about it, you know, but at some point you're really just trying to maximize, you know, your, your ability to lead, your ability to help. Right. And so thinking about that, I could continue to do, you know, more of what I've done and more of what's fun and amazing, you know, or I could go and, and try to learn, right. And try to learn the part of the business that is, the building spaceship side and getting it all integrated and getting it to the launch pad and getting it up on orbit, which is extremely difficult, right? I mean, Artemis is a, a big enterprise of a lot of different spacecraft, you know, rockets, you know, spaceships, space stations, and it's put together by people all over the world. Now that's done on purpose because again, it's a, it's a worldwide human endeavor, but at the same time it is challenging. Right. And so to give myself that challenge to go and learn um, the gateway program itself, the people that make up the program, our international partners are absolutely amazing. We're all here for the same goal to, to get this done. And so, you know, to have an opportunity to join that team and learn a different part of the business that then goes with, you know, the first part of the business that I learned, which is operations. And, and hopefully, you know, that'll, that'll make a difference going forward in terms of what I can do, you know, for NASA and for human spaceflight. So, you know, it's a little bit of a long answer, but, you know, it, it is really just, just trying to do my best to help. I mean, I believe in, in human spaceflight and, you know, Gateway and Artemis were just an opportunity to, you know, make a difference and, and join an amazing team.
Yeah, I do have to pick your brain about one of your previous roles as a flight director. You know, coming from uh, mm-hmm. NASA space camp myself, I was a flight director. <laughs> and uh, we I can all were in space camp, by the way. All of us. We're all in. <laughs> uh, the job was quite challenging. And I just want to know what it's like to uh, kind of hold the whole mission in your hands, you know, when you're dealing with another person is up in space or, you know, a multi-billion dollars of launch equipment and things like that. Obviously, there's pressure and everything. But, you know, just going through your mindset while you're you're in mission mode. Yeah, you know, we we have a kind of a mantra, right? And it's called plan, train, fly, right? So you do a lot of planning, right? You asked me earlier about sort of the distance and, uh, you know, out from low Earth orbit where the space station, International Space Station is to around the moon where a gateway will be. You know, there's a lot of planning that goes in. You sit around and think about things that could go wrong and, and you, you know, talk about them with your team and try to prepare, right? And then you train. So we do simulations, we practice, you know, we meet all the people involved in the mission. So we have good relationships so that, you know, you can make decisions under pressure and you know who you're talking to and you know um, how, you know, how, how they think. Um, and, the, and then you go fly, right? And so, you know, really when you're executing the mission and something, you know, doesn't, doesn't go right, you know, you have that planning and that training to fall back on. You have your team that you've built a relationship with. And really you have all of the experts who have built those spaceships, right? So, you know, kind of tying it back to my current role, you know, you, you have the programs, the gateway program, the Orion program, uh, you know, and all of the engineers that worldwide that support, you know, and pour into getting those things done correctly and safely. And you have their support as well when you need, you know, information from them in order to make to make good decisions, right? The way we try to build spaceships is, you know, each system can do a certain amount of things, right? So for example, a pump can run at a certain speed. And so you try to make sure that when you go fly and you operate, you stay within, you know, that speed because you know it's going to work, right? And then if something happens and you need to use it a little differently, well, you get together with the team that, you know, built built the spaceship and the team that's flying the spaceship and you try to make that all one team. And so one of my goals in, in you know, coming over uh, to another part of human spaceflight was really to be able to you know, bridge, bridge that and put those, those two pieces together. Holly Ridings, Deputy Program Manager for NASA's Gateway Program, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Launch the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. 
And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, you know, I think my my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. 
And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.